0: We are in Hebrews chapter 11. And I had originally thought when I was coming to this text that I was going to teach chapter 11 verses 32 to 38, which would leave the final two verses for another week. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I could say what I think God is trying to say and I could complete the entirety of the text together. As I mentioned Last week, this is really a transition as it summarizes and races to the end of the chapter. Because up to this point, there have been example after example after example of specific historical events of faith, of individuals or, in two circumstances, the nation of Israel, exercising faith in a specific historical context where we could look and look to the Old Testament Bible passage and say, okay, this name matches up with this historical event, and it's an evidence of faith. By my count, basically the way I went through it, we had a total of 13 examples of faith, the first being the belief in creation by God, and then the first named example was Abel, all the way down through Rahab, who we covered last week. And in each instance, this really is a great hall of faith. It's like a hall of fame for faith, somewhere where we can go to be encouraged by what God was able to do through the faith of great saints. But at every point, this is not designed like a hall of fame that we would know for sports. This is not designed for us to just ooh and ah. If I were to go to Cooperstown, which I have not done, but I were to look at all the various displays of all the great baseball players throughout history, across the generations, Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and, for Steve's sake, Willie Mays, and all the way up to the current day, there's one thing I know when I look there. I can't be that person. I can't. I'm not athletically talented enough. Now I'm way too old. I cannot do that. This chapter is not that way. The whole reason every single example we've covered has been given is because God is saying to us through his spirit, through the author of Hebrews, you can do the same things. Not necessarily the same historical context. God will not use us to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery But the faith that motivated and inspired and enabled these individuals to do great things combined with the power of God can still work in our lives. Next week, we're going to start Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look into this a little more closely, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, explains the whole purpose of Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, We're not just supposed to ooh and ah and look at these people behind glass. No, they're a part of the corporate history of God's children that we have. And they're supposed to inspire us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. These are supposed to be motivators to us to recognize we can do what God called us to do by faith. So this morning, we're really completing the cloud. We've we've gone through all of the examples that... We've gone through to this point with more specificity, but we are coming to the end of this, and the grouping is a little bit different. I alluded to this last week. Whereas before we had specific names and specific details tied to specific events, now we basically have a lot of information piled together. There will be some names in the verses we're going to cover. There's some specific names, But the entire structure changes, no longer is this example by example of faith, rather now it's a catalog of all of these great things piled together. He's summarizing a wide swath of Old Testament history and intertestamental history, that just means the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. He's covering a wide expanse of history and he's summarizing it in one fell swoop. Many significant things occurred up to this point in Jewish history. Several things, probably alluded to here, occurred after the end of the Old Testament. We refer to it as the intertestamental period, just between two testaments. But the important thing to realize is the writer is intentionally summarizing a massive amount of history. The point is the cumulative effect of all of these events, combined with the examples of faith already given... It's not the individual events per se. They're presented here in a collective, not an individual sense, and so we this morning, like the writer presented it, are going to cover this in a collective sense instead of the incident-by-incident status that we did before. I really struggled with how to present this material until I ultimately settled on what I pray will be effective, but more so than at any other time, we're just going to be going through the text that is a cumulative bunch, and I'm going to try and highlight what seem to be some thematic points throughout this. But remember the overarching point of why we study this, even as we're just plowing through these verses. I think it answers the question, why is this in the Bible? And it's tied up with chapter 12, verse 1. God knows that God's children need encouragement when times are hard. God knows that God's children sometimes need encouragement to hang in there when things seem impossible. When it seems that there's no way that God's will can be accomplished, God wants us to know that by faith He will always work His will. And we have a history of centuries of examples of men and women in faith that prove that. The important thing is that God's children who have placed their faith in him, who exercise faith, will never be disappointed because God will work his perfect will. That's ultimately our lesson. So let's begin to go through this, and I'm going to read through it bit by bit. So if we start at verse 32, you can follow along with me. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. We know right away that the focus is changing because of the rhetorical device. And what more shall I say? It really is designed to make it clear the writer is summarizing something. Here's what I think if you were to put it in more vernacular language he's saying I've already proved my point what more do you need if I did nothing else I've already given you example after example example that you could hang your hat on and it's almost as that he's saying look if I wanted to I could stay here forever and recount example after example after example after example what more shall I say it's obvious in his point, he's already made his point, so he's going to move on, even though he's going to add in this history. Because he says, for time will fail me. In other words, I don't have enough time to give you every example of faith that you would know. Not only did he not have enough time, we have every example that God wanted us to have by how the author concluded it. But his point is, the history of God and his people is littered literally with men and women who did extraordinary things by faith. It's almost as, he's saying, do I really need to give you any more examples? He's already started with creation itself all the way to the fall of Jericho in great detail. And he's saying, look, if I pick it up with the fall of Jericho and I come to the present day, we've got examples galore. Time will fail me is really just a way of saying, look, it's impossible i uh, tell you my instinct when I start reading Gideon and Barak and Samson and on and on. My instinct is I want to go and look at every single one of them in detail. And yet the writer intentionally did not do that. And so I want to try not to improve on what the Holy Spirit already did and not do that. But he's picking historical examples of people who have done incredible things... And yet every one of these examples, if we went through it, is not a happy ending. In other words, every one of these individuals had character flaws. Every one of these individuals sinned. Some of them sinned spectacularly. The point was God used all types of people in all different circumstances. Certainly David is heroic in the sense that he was a man after God's own heart. But even David committed murder, adultery, and paid a high price for it. If you look at Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, those are all judges from the book of Judges. They all achieved great military victories. Each of them had faults. They weren't perfect men. But when God called them, at some point, they ultimately answered. We've been going through a book in the small group that meets in my house every other, well, almost every other Friday. We've had to reschedule a lot. We went through the lives of Gideon. We went through the life of Samson. And God did extraordinary things through them. But in each circumstance, the writer is just collectively saying, look, you remember your history. The first four listed again are judges. David, of course, was the greatest king. Samuel was a transitional figure. He was the last judge. Introducing the era of the kings, he was also a prophet. The writer mentions the other prophets. He could have gone through countless prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, on and on. And there is much he could have said about every person. As the writer said, time would fail. I mean, he could spend all day talking about just a few people he mentioned. And then when you use a term like the prophets, you could speak expansively. The author, though, doesn't do all of those details. He just points out that, look. Yeah, there are other examples. In fact, I could name a few. We won't get into them. But they're all representative of the same thing. Through faith, God's children can do amazing things. And I think he's saying, if time permitted, and if it was necessary, I could prove that point. Now, as he goes on, he begins to sort of summarize again, not what each individual did, but this collective power exerted by these individuals who had faith beginning in verse 33. So he goes through that list of names. Verse 33. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These are victorious examples of faith. It's like three groups of threes in the way the language is laid out, but the reality is it's just examples showing that God does great things. The important clause at the beginning of verse 33 makes it clear, though it's who by faith. In other words, it was not because these were just exceptional men or exceptional women in the case of some that we've mentioned. The idea was it was faith in the one true God that allowed all of these events. It was by faith, through faith, that they could conquer kingdoms. And certainly there were some conquerors there. David was a warrior in battle. Gideon conquered things. They performed acts of righteousness. The likely meaning of this in terms of phraseology is that at times God allowed to clear the deck, get rid of a pagan regime, and put in, at least for periods of time, justice and righteousness, which was really in short supply and never endured for very long. It mentions that they obtained promises. This is just a circumstance, for example... And I'll just use it as an illustration. We talked about Jericho and the walls coming down. God told Joshua, do these things and I promise you'll conquer them. Well, they conquered them. That happened later in history. That happened at later events. It happened with Gideon when God said, you got too many soldiers, too many soldiers, too many soldiers, too many soldiers. And now you got a ragtag bunch that doesn't look like you could do anything. They did obtain some promises. In other words, when God said, you act this way and I'll respond, he did that. All of these things are examples of Old Testament heroes who had faith and were able to do things for God. So those were victories against other odds or in circumstances. The next three descriptions really are personal deliverance. Talking about shut the mouth of lions, quench the power of fire, escape from the edge of the sword. Obviously, these are deliverances from death. Now, as soon as you say, shut the mouth of lions, most of us would think of Daniel, because Daniel obviously was thrown into a lion's den, and that didn't happen. But David killed a lion at one point. Samson killed a lion at one point. There, There are examples of God delivering that way. Quench the power of fire. Most people immediately, and I think it's accurate, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By faith, they wouldn't bow down. And they were very clear with the king. Look, you'll kill us. God can deliver us, but even not. We're not going to compromise. Escape from the edge of the sword. There were countless Old Testament examples. David escaped many times. Saul was trying to kill him. And he escaped. Elijah was under threat of death. He escaped. Other prophets were threatened. And at times, they escaped. So you've got this picture of these military and governmental type victories, and you've got these personal deliverances where by faith God chose to deliver some of the saints out of difficulties. As I thought about the final trio of descriptors here, I think of a reversal of circumstances where it looks like one thing is going to prevail and then God turns things around. It says, "...from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." You think, for example, of Samson. You remember he was very strong, and then he was very foolish, and his hair was cut, and he was very weak. And then the last act he had, God gave him strength one final time to tear down the building and kill more Philistines in his death than he did in his whole life. Unlikely warriors like Gideon and Barak from the Old Testament, they weren't mighty warriors. God made them into such. They're examples of foreign armies that just ran away. They were able to be thwarted by inferior numbers. So the overarching picture here is just this summary of reminding them of the cavalcade of events in the Old Testament that show that by faith, things are possible that seem impossible. By faith, things can occur that would defy human explanation. I think a great example of that is in verse 35. Now, just the first clause of verse 35. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Now, I really think in the catalog, this sort of ends a first sort of subsection. It's showing victorious circumstances, reversal of fortune, success in the face of great odds. There are at least two Old Testament examples likely in view here. In 1 Kings, Elijah Elijah was used to raise a child who had died from sickness. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was used to bring back a woman's son who had been killed out in the fields with farmers. In both cases, heartbroken mothers had their children restored to them for a time. The second instance, it was probably a young adult, but a son was restored to a mom in the event of an untimely death. So we'll just catch our breath for just a moment and recognize that what's been laid out here to this point is just victory after victory. Reversal of circumstances. Things look bleak. Things look terrible. By faith, God at times will restore fortunes. He'll turn things around. This is sort of the victory parade as we look at the winners going by. And to be honest, I think it's not hard to think, I hope I have faith like that when you see the victory. Faith that allows me to conquer my circumstances. Faith that delivers me from overwhelming odds. I'm surrounded and it looks hopeless, but faith that will give me victory. And God, for His sovereign purposes, does give earthly victories at times. All of these are examples. These are real. God does do this. If you were to listen to false health and wealth gospel preachers, the Joel Osteens of the world, he he preaches a health and wealth gospel. He's just dressed up a little nicer than some of the other proponents. All of these examples I just gave you, they'd be shouting, Amen. Boy, this is great. This is what God does. And I don't want to negate the fact that God does this just because some people pervert those victories. In my own life, I have seen circumstances that seemed impossible, and I look back and I marvel at what God's done. But that's not the only thing faith looks like. Faith does look like that at times. But just as God sometimes allows great deliverance and great victory from earthly trials, He sometimes allows devastation and misery and hardship to accompany faith. And the faith is just as real. People that went through that are held up as our examples as well. I'm going to read the rest of verse 35 down to verse... I think I'm going to read through verse 38. So he says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This is a catalog of misery and privation. This is not the happy ending, feel good, roll the credits because we all go home smiling. And yet, these are just as much examples of faith that are supposed to help us endure this earthly life as the others. You know, some of these events, as you study through them, are probably tied to specific events in Jewish history, although he doesn't list it out that way. Several of these things occurred more than once. So it might be that a particular person was in view, but there might have been multiple people in these circumstances. And I think the lesson to be drawn really is that these are representative of the struggles of men and women of faith for a long time. This first reference in verse 35 that others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. It certainly is talking about individuals who because of faith recognize that earth is not their home. They were looking forward to what God would do in the future. They had the mindset of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although this is clearly not referencing them. It's better to die, it's better to be tortured than to compromise. There are some apocryphal books that are not part of Scripture. But some of those books catalog some history from the end of the writing of the Old Testament before the New Testament was written. Not all of that history is accurate. But there are times where some of the history is likely accurate. In fact, there's New Testament references that cite some of that, which just tells you that even though they're not scripture, sometimes they get the history correct. But there's an account, and forgive me if I'm wrong on this, I looked it up and I didn't write the details down. I read through it of, I think it was six brothers and a mother, who were told, denounce Judaism, eat pork, defile yourselves and you can live. And the first brother was tortured mercilessly and killed. He wouldn't recant. The next brother, okay, you better, we'll let you all go, just recant. Don't stick to your faith. One by one they died. Even the last brother who had watched all the other brothers die was told, What, are you kidding me? Are you a fool? We'll let you live. He said, No. The rage of the individual was growing as each one of these brothers wouldn't renounce their faith. Ultimately, did the same thing to the mom. It may be that that's the historical account in view. But in each case, the person understood, I have hope in heaven. I have eternal life. There's a resurrection Awaiting me, it's not worth it to compromise. It was seven brothers. I actually, I did write it in my notes. I just didn't look at my notes. They were tortured and offered freedom. They said, no, we won't take it. Verse 36, others experienced mockings and scourging and chains and imprisonment. Sounds like what happened to Jesus in some respects and a lot of other New Testament characters. But before, this had reference to the Old Testament. Countless of God's servants were treated they weren't just talked bad about it was accompanied by physical suffering it's one thing to be called names it's another thing to be called names while you're being tortured and destroyed physically and you're in chains and you're imprisoned brutal mistreatment physical as well as mental people enduring unbelievable physical and emotional and mental torment. All because of their faith. Because they had faith in the one true God. And some didn't get to keep their lives. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. Literally cut in two. Put to death with the sword. Stoning was a standard means of killing people. Stephen, you recall, he was killed by stoning. Paul being a witness for it. Countless other examples throughout history. Being killed by the sword. Again, that happened so many times nobody could count. Prophets. Normal people. Men and women of faith. The idea of being cut in two is probably a reference to the tradition that says the prophet Isaiah was killed by being cut in half. Some accounts say he was hiding in a tree and they knew it and they just cut the tree in half to kill him. The ultimate point of all of this is the God who allows great victory sometimes allows great suffering and he allows his saints to die. Some were physically tortured for their faith, some were killed for their faith, some were imprisoned for their faith. And we need to keep this in context. The writer was writing to individuals who were tempted, wondering, is this where we should stay? And the writer is being very clear. Some of them had already endured persecution for the faith. Some of them had already endured some suffering from the faith. What he's making it clear is you can endure even to the point of death. You can endure if you're suffering. You can endure if you're tortured. You can endure no matter the hardship. God may give you victory. God may allow you to suffer. God doesn't abandon you in either circumstance. The victor and the victim both have faith and they both should encourage us. He gives a picture of some individuals who didn't even have Clothes to wear. Verse 37, the latter part. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. If you jump ahead, because I'm going to come back to a verse. They were wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I mean, these people didn't even have decent clothes to wear. Elijah the prophet walked around in animal skins, but others did as well wasn't just a fashion choice for a lot of God's saints. It was, I don't have anything else to wear. Put on an animal skin. It's either wear that or go naked. They were despised. They were looked down upon. No one would give them the time of day in a positive way. I remember an account. There's a professor at the Master's College, not the Master's Seminary, the Master's College, who grew up in China, and he watched his brother be beat to death by the communists because his parents wouldn't recant their faith and wouldn't reveal the existence of the family Bible. His parents were put in prison, likely died there. He and his sister were all that were left. The testimony is available on the internet if you can find it. It's hard to find. I heard it in seminary chapel. He and his sister were thus orphans, and the entire Village was told if you are nice to them, you will suffer from the communist government. They were outcasts. I think that's the picture the writer is conveying where nobody will touch you. You're persona non grata. Nobody's going to have anything to do with you. That's the example of these men and women of faith. There's a reason they were wandering in deserts and mountains. Sometimes it's because that's the only way they could survive. If they went to town, they would be killed. For others, do you want to lay on the ground? Do you want to lay in a cave? Who knows what's in there, animals or anything else? They're just trying to survive. I quite often watch that show Survivor Man, where he goes out in the middle of nowhere and periodically he'll sleep in a cave or something like that. This is far different because that's for entertainment value with TV cameras to make money on a show. These were people, that was their life. But as the writer is laying out these catalogs, it's very clear these aren't put here just so we can feel sorry for them. In fact, pitying these people would be foolish because they're not to be pitied, they're to be revered. In the New American Standard, it's parenthetically placed this at the beginning of verse 38. Men, of course meaning men and women, men of whom the world was not worthy. I tried to picture how significant that statement is. These are giants of the faith, many of them that we don't know by name. And I think, and I can't fully picture, the Bible reveals something about the day of judgment. There is a moment of awareness and despair when people recognize, I am doomed. I think of the haunting account when people are saying to Jesus, Lord, Lord. It's clear from the scripture they have an awareness of what is about to occur. And I think there'll be countless people on the Judgment Day who see faithful saints of God who were mistreated and abused, and these people will be filled with dread and shame because they realize their treatment of these individuals did not harm them. Those people are going to be and are saints of God. People they treated as trash, people the world treated as trash, are treasured sons of the Most High God. So how do I sum up these pictures? Understand this. Those who suffered and those who triumphed were equally in God's will. They equally are examples of faith. Those who God delivered and those who were tortured and suffered. God can show His glory through miraculous deliverance and God can show His glory through the humble suffering of Of his faithful children. I think this should encourage us. But also it should sober us. Some of you right now. May be in the midst of horrible trials. There are challenges and troubles on every side. And there seems to be nowhere to turn. The lesson of Hebrews chapter 11. Is no matter what. Maintain your faith. God may glorify himself by delivering you from your troubles. I've experienced that joy. But God may also glorify himself by allowing you to remain in those trials and just to endure. And I've experienced that joy as well. And understand it is supposed to be joy no matter what. What James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But whether through triumph and deliverance or trial and endurance, God is faithful. We still look to these heroes as our example. Wherever God enables us to be, whatever circumstances we are in, these are our examples that we can endure. If you're suffering and God doesn't take the suffering away, you can endure it. And if you're in the midst of suffering and you're praying for God's deliverance, God can deliver you. He may, he may not. Either way, we praise the Lord. In the final two verses, the writer summarizes this chapter, really. I think. Verse 39. And all these... I think he means every single example of faith that he's given. And all these, having gained approval through faith, did not receive what was promised. Verse 40 because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Now, the first part of verse 39 I think is easy enough to understand. Every example of faith mentioned, everyone gained God's approval. Quite often, they never had man's approval. That's the reason many of them were tortured and imprisoned and killed. But they had God's approval. Let me encourage you, and this is important, because in the midst of trials, our thinking gets distorted. In the midst of hardship, it is difficult at times to focus on truth. That's why we have verses in the Bible, like Philippians 4, 8, that tell us to dwell on right thinking. Understand, if you are a child of God, you have his approval no matter what. Period. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can snatch you out of God's hand. Don't let anything, including your circumstances and your trials and difficulties, rob you of that truth. You're precious in God's sight. He's redeemed you, and he will hold on to you. That's the gaining approval through faith. The next part looks a little odd. It says, And all these did not receive what was promised. Now it's interesting because we just saw that some obtained promises. Here's what I think the point of this is. And I gotta tell you, the first time I read it, I scratched my head, and then I look at it and I study and I understand, I think, better. The ultimate promise was Jesus Christ. I think that's what's being dealt with here. Even in the Old Testament, it was always pointing to Christ. Always pointing to Christ. That's why Jesus, although it infuriated the Pharisees, could say, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. The Old Testament continually points forward to the Messiah. From the fall to the end, it's pointing to Christ. That's the ultimate promise. And what the writer, I believe, is saying is they all gained God's approval, but they ultimately didn't get to see what we saw. They didn't get to experience the reality that we got to experience, which is the promised one, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Son of God, still hadn't come. So when he says God had provided something better for us, the issue is not that there's a different type of faith per se. There is a new covenant. If you recall, we talked extensively about the new covenant and the difference. But the better is Jesus Christ. That's all the point is. So these men and women had faith to endure all of these things, the struggles, the triumphs, the tragedies. They had faith, but it was a faith based on a promise that ultimately wasn't fulfilled before their death. A promise that the Messiah would come. He's saying we have the better because we know the Messiah has come. They died in faith that God would provide a way, would provide a deliverer. We're on the other side of the cross. God provided something better because we got to see Christ, the reality. Ultimately, he started the book talking about the fact that God in the old days spoke through the fathers, the prophets. Now, he's spoken to us in his son. All of the Old Testament examples, all of Hebrews chapter 11, they did not have the reality of Jesus Christ. They had the promise that one day, we have the reality. I think that explains that somewhat from our standpoint, at least my initial reading, that odd statement, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Well, all that is referencing to the fact that their sins were paid for on the cross as well. They had faith in God, but the substitutionary death, the atonement, the propitiation for their sins would not come until the future. They could not have the perfection of their faith until Christ's blood was spilt. The blood of Jesus Christ cleansed their sins just as it cleansed ours. Theirs were looking forward to the cross in the hope and the promise of God and they had faith. They believed that God would provide a means. Ours is on the other side looking back at the cross knowing that the means has already been provided. The blood has been shed. They look forward in hope. We look back in hope. Again, we're going to start looking at chapter 12 next week. But this is the cloud of witnesses that God's put in front of us. This is our hope. Don't think that they have something different. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the ability to exercise faith like they did. And as we discuss next week, it's going to allow us to avoid sin. It's going to allow us to endure when times are hard. Ultimately, it's going to point us towards Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful men and women who have gone before us, who have suffered and sacrificed, and we also thank you for those you delivered. Lord, through it all, help us to keep a proper perspective on you. Lord, whether you give us triumph or tragedy in this life, help us endure. Help us look to Jesus. Lord, help us think rightly about our lives in this world, and let us live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.